guys, welcome back to Yes, a complete week. Wow, what a full week of studying the Gospel of Matthew. Here we are in Lesson 16, and I don't know if you were able to join us yesterday when we first started off in Matthew 15. We kind of started at a weird spot. Remember this, Kevin? We started off with, you know, Jesus basically going right at the religious, saying, you hypocrites, and he starts talking about giving them lip service. I want to do the same thing in Matthew 16, but this time I want to start and jump right in, not, not with the religious, but with the disciples. Now, remember this. They've done all these kind of miracles. They've experienced everything over and over again. And then in Matthew 16, this is so crazy to me. In verse 7, they discussed among themselves in Matthew 16. And it says, we didn't bring any bread. Oh, no. Like, who didn't get to go to Costco? Who didn't go to Sam's Club? Who forgot the bread? Like, they're really genuinely concerned. They don't have any bread. And then Jesus, it's like he winds up. Not like with his fist, but he's just like aware of this. Jesus said in verse eight, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Like, I can't believe we were having this discussion right now. It continues on in verse nine. Don't you understand yet? I'm going to fill in a gap here for a second. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000? Did you see that, Kevin? Five loaves for the 5,000. And how many baskets, there you go, Kevin, did you collect? How many baskets, like, you guys, by the way, and then in verse um, 10, or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many large baskets you collected, and you're worried about, you didn't bring any bread? <laughs> I'd be like, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say that. Kevin said it. Kevin forgot the bread, you know, (laughs) I mean, this is the mentality. So why is it, Jesus says, that you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the yeast, keep going here with me in verse 11, uh, of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread. And then in verse 12, it says, then they understood, oh, yeah, that he did not tell them to beware the yeast and bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so it's just kind of like, Ah, oh, these poor guys, man, they're, they, somebody has to be the guinea pig, right? At least it's not the Old Testament, because if it was the Old Testament, they'd die, <laughs> right? I'll show you no bread, and then they just die, you know, and turn them into a loaf of bread or something. So, like, you learn from these scenarios. So, I want to transition, though, into verse, ni- uh, into verse 13. Somehow, Jesus has a way of navigating harsh truth and continuing to have a friendship. You know what I mean? Like he's hanging out with 12 apostles. He just lit into them. Like, I can't believe you. And oh, hey, by the way, they're on the way. It says in verse 13 to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Not, not, this isn't Caesarea along the Mediterranean. This is Caesarea Philippi. And he asked his disciples, okay, who do people say that the son of man is? Now, this is an awesome question because he's clearly identifying himself as the son of man. And so here you are, they're on their way, they're 120 miles from Jerusalem, they're 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, they're at the base of Mount Hermon, and he says, could you just, let's have a, you remember when I sent you guys out in in Matthew 10, and I told you guys to go basically, go find anybody and everybody, go find the lost sheep. Now, I want you to give me a religious survey back on what are people saying. That makes sense? Like they have to go out in order to understand the culture. And this is a huge point for me in my heart. Like if I bring out the soapbox again, it's really hard to describe the culture if you're not in the culture. It's really hard to describe what your neighborhood is like or who your neighbors are if you're not actually out with your your neighbors. One of the best things for my family is that my wife and I have kids. And why is that so good? Because kids force you to get out and interact with people. 
It's not that I don't want, it's not that I don't want to, it's not that I don't love my neighbors. It's none of that stuff. But sometimes we all need this little extra like, hey, let's just go out. Does that make sense? And so I think sometimes the church, we need that. We need the kids to say, come on out and play. Come on out. It's not so bad out here so that I can tell you what the community's like. And praise the Lord, the disciples are actually out doing what Jesus has asked so that they can say, oh yeah, this is what people are saying about you. And so then in verse 14, they begin to give a list. Now, this is what's interesting to me. If you could just picture, okay, and picture that this whole wall right here is Caesarea Philippi, okay? And then what you'd have is, is that you'd have little, like, you know, when you get a trophy for soccer, you get a trophy for basketball, or I don't know, Kevin, maybe for math, math for you and numbers, you know, like if you got a trophy, right? That, Kevin, is that a good one? That's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Imagine if you have a trophy in, in, in your house, you're going to set it on there. What you're going to have in Caesarea Philippi is you're going to have all of these little ledges so you can put all of these false idols here. So it's a whole wall of false idols. So in the backdrop with all of the false idols, Jesus is interacting with his, his followers. He says, hey, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, now one of the options that I've heard in interacting with people, you know, maybe outside of Galilee is John the Baptist. Okay. Now, remember, we used this discussion when we were talking about John the Baptist because some people thought he was John the Baptist, but then other Jews thought, well, maybe he's Elijah, which meant that because they thought either John the Baptist or Elijah, they thought that they were actually two separate people. Okay, so this is where we come up with some of that argument. Some others just thought, well, maybe you're Jeremiah. Or others would say, well, maybe you're just one of the prophets. Okay, so they give them really four main names, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But I love this. Jesus says, okay, I really appreciate you sharing, you know, the culture's perspective. I want to know something though. I want to know who do you say that I am? And I think this is a cool litmus test of just where you're at with the Lord. If you're walking with King Jesus, right? <laughs> Outside of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, all right, Kyle, what, why don't you just tell me a little bit about American culture? How, how would they describe me, Jesus? And I'd say, well, Jesus... I think they would describe you as a prophet. I think a lot of Muslims would say, you're a prophet, and then they'd say, peace be upon you. And they would say, you're a great prophet. And then I think some people, some religions would say, Jesus, you're, you're an incredible teacher. I think some media uh, would grab a hold of the name of Jesus and say he was an incredibly moral man and that he was an awesome teacher. You know, I think they would say and walk through this process. But then I also think they'd say he's, he was, you know, he's a great historical figure. But I don't know Jesus if a lot of people would say, you're the Messiah. I think in America today, we're afraid to say that. Why? Because it sounds judgmental. You guys, when it's the truth, it's not judgment. I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Well, you can't say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes, I can. John 14, 6, that's actually the truth. That's not judgmental. That's actual truth. So when somebody says that he's not the way, that is a false truth. That's a lie. And I want to make sure they understand who Jesus is. It goes back to, remember, the shelf, the mystery, the mystery of the gospel. Our job is to steward this so that we can communicate to the culture, this is who Jesus is. So Jesus says to you, Kyle, forget the culture side. Who do you say that I am? And you have to think through, what, what would you say? And I'm going to give you some time to process. I'll give these guys some time to process about the one or two words that you would describe of who Jesus is. I love Peter's answer. He says in Matthew 16, verse 16, Jesus asked him, Simon Peter said, you are the Messiah. And there's an exclamation point at the end. It says the son 
of the living God. It was kind of like Peter's proud moment. Jesus, I recognize who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ and you are the son of the living God. And if I can say it another funny way, an interesting way, you're not the dumb, dead idols that everybody else worships. You're alive and you're my Messiah. This, t- this uh, phrase, living God, uh, it also implies the Old Testament name for Jehovah. In fact, Deuteronomy 5.26, Kevin, if you would. Deuteronomy 5.26, just an, an Old Testament phrase of the Jehovah term. And I love this. For who out of all my, mankind has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fires we have and lived? I love this. I there's something to me about when I hear uh, the word is alive and active. Like, you know, it feels like it can come to life every day. Yeah, it's a historical book. Absolutely. But it's also the word of God, which means it can speak to us every single day because it's alive. When I hear living God, I don't think of some God up in the sky as a father on a big chair and he has nothing to do with us. He's alive and he wants to pour into us. I think about walking on water, right? When, when these guys are walking on water, Peter is, and then they're in the boat. Remember what happens? Jesus comes to them. Because he's alive and he cares. He wants to speak into this. And so when I hear a living God, I think of Jehovah and I think of God who cares for me. You know, I guess I want to go to you guys, just, just practical. And I'm going to ask the, those that are listening. I'm going to ask those that are at the school, those that are doing this online. I want you to come up with one word. If I was to say, who is Jesus to you? What would you say? Uh, Kevin, you're always my initial go-to. What would you say? Who, who would you say Jesus is in your life? Focus. He's your focus. Okay. That's good. What would you say, Jeff? Faithful. He's faithful. Taylor, I can't even see you, Taylor. Taylor, are you there? Friend. He's your friend. TJ, what would you say? Uh, Guide. He's your guide. And I would say for me in this season, he is my strength. And I think what's cool is about everybody's words are different about who Christ is. Because you want to know why? Because he's alive. He's a living God. And you know what? Tomorrow, he could actually have a different word that you might think of him. You might need him as your comforter tomorrow. You might need him as your, um, as your friend, as Taylor said. You know, whatever that context is. And you know why this is important? Because somebody one day is going to ask you, who is Jesus in your life? And you need to have a word. You need to say, he's my hope. Well, tell me, why is your hope? Because I know my life might be hard right now, but ultimately I know I have hope in the end. People need to hear these things. And so Jesus asked Simon Peter, who am I in your life? And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. (laughs) And I love this in verse 17. Jesus responds, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You're a fisherman. (laughs) You didn't grow up with this. You know, I love this because you know how many people say, well, I didn't grow up in the church or I didn't grow up with a Christian home. Yeah, join the club. Look at Simon. You're blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven, which means God can show up in anybody's life at any time and show him who he is. He did it with Simon Peter. And then it continues on in verse 18. And I also say to you, Peter, now that you got the first answer right, I'm going to pour into you. And on this rock, Peter... I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Now, 
this whole thing about Peter and the rock and what and who is all this. Let me just break down just a little bit. Okay, the word Petros, okay, it means small stone. The word Petra, okay, means foundation. Small stone, foundation, or builder. Now, when we think of rock, we think that Jesus is the rock, right? That's typically what we have a tendency to think, that Jesus is the one who serves as our cornerstone. Um, in 1 Peter 2, verse, can you go there, Kevin? 1 Peter 2, verse 6. 1 Peter, um, 1 Peter 2, 6, thanks. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Okay, so we're talking about the cornerstone. When I think of the rock, when I think of the stone, in fact, Kevin, can you go to um, Hebrew, uh, Acts 4, verse 11? Just want to paint a picture about really, there's a tension in commentaries. There's a tension in the theological world, the rock component. But this Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. We know that the rock that the church is built on is Jesus. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? It does say, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. But here's where I think this is really cool. Can you go now to Ephesians 2.20? This is how they tie in together. Jesus serves as a foundation. Jesus serves as a cornerstone. But now watch, okay? Peter, as an apostle, says in Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. Do you see how this can work together? Peter and Jesus can be an, an uh, essential foundation for the church. The apostles and the prophets... We are to build our foundations upon, which we know ultimately that Christ is our cornerstone. So Peter got it right. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, oh, you're right, Peter. Way to go. Seriously, I'm going to build upon the foundation of me and I'm going to build upon the foundation of you as an apostle. And we're going to build our church, the ecclesia. We're going to build my church, he says. We're going to build the ecclesia at least 114 times. This word church, ecclesia, is mentioned in the New Testament, it's, it's referencing the called out ones. And I just got to state the obvious. Church doesn't have to be what we always think it has to be. Church back then probably didn't involve a massive church and you had to get everybody in. It was really about the called out ones who came together. They took care of each other. They fed each other. Uh, they, they taught into each other. They met each other's needs. And then you know what they did? They went back out to go find the lost sheep. This is the mentality. They went house to house. And all of this ecclesia, the church, Christ's church, was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 19, he says this, I will give you the keys, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Now, first of all, I love the imagery of keys and talking about binding and loosing. Why I say that is, is I always feel like once you have the keys, you can unlock or you can lock something, right? That just sounds like it fits in verse 19. Now, these keys, okay, it's really a symbol, in my opinion, of authority. I'm giving you the authority of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind. Now, guys, help me out here. When we say this word bind on earth, what, what, are, we, what are we talking about? I think about tying up my mind being a farm boy the old shocks or the the harvest tying it up tying it together so what are we binding up though i agree we're tying what are we binding on earth if it's already bound in heaven what are we actually binding here any thoughts um 
anything that would have authority on earth, we're overcoming that with authority from heaven. So I, I think of, you know, where where it talks about, you know, binding the strong man. There you uh, go. Going in and um, first you have to bind the strong man and then that frees the... That's right. Yeah. So you're binding things that aren't necessarily of the Lord. What you're saying, Kevin, you're tying them up together. You have the authority to bring them together because those things aren't meant to be free. They're not meant to be loosed here on earth because they're bound in heaven as well. Now, whatever's loosed in heaven can be loosed here on earth. Now, to me, that gets me excited. A couple examples, just fun ones, is remember in Matthew 10, verse 8, if you'll go there, Kevin. Matthew 10, verse 8, let's just imagine the keys again that we've been given the authority to what? To loosen up that the sickness, that it's just gone. You can look at it, you're going to bind the sickness up or you're going to free people from the sickness. Does that make sense? You want to raise the dead. You have the authority to raise the dead. Why? Because death is not intended in heaven. Life is. You can free people from skin diseases because that's not in heaven and it shouldn't be down here on earth. But we got to understand we have the keys to unlock and walk out this authority to drive out demons. Now, the context of this environment, remember, he's still going after the sheep. He's still going after the lost sheep and they still need to see these signs. They need to see these miracles. And Jesus says, I'm giving you, Peter, the keys. Let's go loose this thing up. Let's get people to look at how God can move in heaven. He can move here on earth. And I love this because he says, I've given this to you freely. You can give it away. But just as a reminder, Peter, I have given you the authority to do this. If you can loose those things that are up here, down here, I would say, let's go. And I'm working on that. I'm learning what this means. And my prayer is, is that you too, every day, just gain a little bit more confidence that you have been given the authority to do that here on earth. In verse 20, Remember, he says, and he gave the disciples orders. This is classic to tell no one (laughs) to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Somebody please help me with this. It's the shh, don't tell anybody mentality again. Got any thoughts on why, guys? Well, I think the perception of a king or a Messiah was different than what Christ was. And he he wanted people to figure it out. Yeah, and so publicity at times, I know, Taylor, we even talk about, you know, bad publicity is always still good publicity. In this context, it might not be because of timing. Jesus didn't want things to get out because he still had to go through a process. That might not be the case for us. But in Jesus's context, please don't tell anybody right now because I still have to go through a couple more things, meaning suffer, meaning die, meaning be buried, come back to life in order for the kingdom to be instituted. Uh, Okay, moving on. Verse 21. From then on, look what happens. Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. So at that moment, in Matthew 16, from 20 to 21, there was a shift. It's almost like he became so focused, Jesus says, I now have to fulfill uh, this calling of my life. And look what Peter does in verse 22. Peter, who just said, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. He took Jesus aside. (laughs) Peter. And he began to rebuke Jesus, the Messiah himself, and said, oh, no, Lord, this will never, this will never happen to you. (laughs) 
You know, before we get to Jesus's response, you know, this is kind of a pattern of Peter's life. You guys got this figured out? Just a couple of things. Nelson commentary just kind of points this out for me. I thought this was really helpful. You know, he's the first guy, right? I don't, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to get out and I'll walk on the water, right? So this dra- everything's drastic with Peter. Everything is like extreme. So in Matthew 14, yep, I'll walk on water. And then how about Matthew 26, verse 35? How about this one? Matthew 26, verse 35. It's just, this should serve as an encouragement for all of us, okay? I think we all have a little bit of, uh, you know, the apostle Peter inside of us. He says, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I'll never deny you. No way, Jesus, I'll never deny you. And all the disciples, they are, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with what Peter said. I want to walk on water. I'll never deny you. He denied him three times. Interesting enough, at the end of John, uh, Jesus makes Peter tell him that he loves him three times. Peter learns a lot. What about on the rooftop, the sheet? How many times did it drop? Three times. Peter's a slow learner, but he's excited about life. And I think those that get excited about life, yep, I'm looking at myself. Sometimes we probably should just slow down just a little. What are you doing in this, God? How about the other one? Uh, this is a classic one. John 18, 10. Uh, remember, Jesus is getting ready to be turned over. There's a, an arrest has taken place. One of, one of the 12 apostles has turned against him. And then what do you know? Peter, who had a sword, he drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. So just like that, Peter <laughs> cuts off Malchus's, uh, you know, his right ear. And what does Jesus do? Like always, he's picking up the pieces he puts Malchus's ear back on his head and says, it's not the right time. Come on, I got to go through the suffering, Peter. Peter, why do we always have to do this? He decides to pull Jesus to the side in verse 22 of Matthew 16. And he began to rebuke him. He said, this will never happen to you. In verse 23, it's kind of radical. He turned to Peter, Jesus, and he told him, get behind me, Satan. You know, I'm not saying Peter is trying to be funny because I think Peter is very serious. But Jesus, Jesus took this to a whole new level. He basically just said, you've become a mouthpiece for Satan. Matthew 4.10. Kevin, can you go there if you don't mind? Matthew 4.10 has this uh, same feel. Then Jesus, remember when he's actually interacting with Satan himself? In the wilderness, you remember this? He fasted for 40 days and he's being tempted. And right away he says, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This pretty much looks identical to what he just told one of his right-hand men, his disciples. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. He just told Peter, Peter, your perspective is off. Peter, your whole heart condition, I'm concerned. Everything just became about you and not me. You know, I just want to encourage us, you guys. There's so much we can learn from this. And Jesus says, if you really want to have a focus on me, on God's concern and not yours, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And it's not going to be easy. In fact, most of you, it could scare off. But he says in verse 24, then Jesus says to his disciples, you want to learn how to focus on God's concerns and not man's? You want to learn how to be not like Peter? <laughs> he said to his disciples, if anybody wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He continues on in verse 25, for whoever wants to save his life. So Peter, 
If you're concerned about preserving my life or you're concerned about preserving your life and all the other disciples, you should actually be willing to lose it. Because whoever loses his life because of me will actually find it, Scripture says. And then in verse 26, what will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Peter, I need you to understand this is the mentality that I need you to have because everything I'm going to focus on is I got to get to Jerusalem and I can't have you be a hindrance. What will a man, what will a man give in exchange for his life? In verse 27, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he's going to reward each according to what he has done. And I assure you in verse 28, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. How fun is this? King Jesus even says, some of you aren't even going to physically die. You're not even going to taste death until he comes back. And so there's so much here, but here's the question. How on earth do we do what Jesus just said? How on earth do we tangibly break this thing up where you say, I don't even know where to start. So what I want to do is, is I want to just, I want to, I'm going to just break up and it just says this from 24 and on. I'm going to create two categories. Okay. This is what I want us to work on. Okay. Warren Wearsby does an incredible job of just very simplifying. How do you and I walk this out? Well, first of all, you have a choice. Okay. You can deny yourself today when you wake up or you can live for yourself. And when you break it up like this, you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of I kind of do some of that. I don't know if I if I do this. Here's another thing. In order to follow the king, you got to be able to take up the cross. But if you don't want to do that, here's what you can do. You can ignore the cross. This is what Jesus was concerned about. This is man's right. And that's God's concern. How do you put more of your focus on God's concerns, not Man's concerns. Well, another way to do this is, is that you can follow Christ. I'll just put follow the king. Or follow the world. I really like, I like, I like this one. I like the world. I like what they can offer. Following the king is hard. It's perseverance. It's dealing with persecution. You know, here's another thing you can do. You can lose your, lose your life or save your life. This isn't a great sales pitch for following God's concerns. Because it's not a fancy sales pitch and it's not sexy, yeah, let's go over to the man's way. Let's do what's easier and more comfortable. And we already learned, you guys, in the beginning of Matthew, wide is the way that leads to destruction. The narrow path is really, really hard to find. There's a couple others on here, but, you know, forsaking the world, gaining the world, keeping your soul, losing your soul, sharing his reward or losing his reward and glory. You know, there's a lot. I think it all comes down to every single day you and I have a choice. We can learn as Peter learned. Do we want to put our focus on God's concerns or man's concerns? Because I don't even question that you and I view Jesus as king. I don't question that. I believe those that are listening, I actually believe that you believe that he's your hope. I believe that he's your friend. I believe that he is your strength. I believe that he is your guy that's going to walk with you every day. I believe that he's your savior and your Messiah. 
But every day you have to make that decision. And you got to say, do I want to live like he is or do I want to live like he's not? And for just a moment, Peter decided he didn't want to live like that. And at that moment, Jesus just said, get behind me, Satan. And then he used that as an example to all of the other disciples. This is how I want you to live. All right, guys, this is Matthew 16. Lesson number 16. And guess what? We get to do it again tomorrow. I'm excited. We'll join you and talk to you about Matthew 17 tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks.